Sup, you beautiful bastards. Welcome back to the Philip DeFranco Show. I got a fantastic one for you today, but first, I'm so excited to get to finally say the final beautiful bastard drop of 2022 is here. It's the Black Friday, Cyber Monday, whatever you want to call it drop. So much awesome to grab, and keep in mind, there are limited quantities, so you need to jump in now. We got the emotionally exhausted flower power goodness. I live in this thing now. It is the comfiest thing I own. After years, we finally brought back sports in a number of different colorways. Also, one day we'll all be skeleton awesomeness. We launched Hail Santa because we wanted to get, you know, get someone angry at us, I guess. And finally, my favorite new things from the drop. The fantastic leather bound notebooks. You know, I love journaling and game planning. It's like, it's just a part of me. So it was important to me that these were like moleskin quality. We got our fantastic Hydro Flask quality water bottles. It's great on your desk or uh, on a hike that I guilted you into coming on. And then years in the making, I made a promise I would never launch candles again unless they were fucking amazing. And we did it with please calm your shit and have a great fucking day. It is the best candle you will ever buy. 110 hour burn time, wood wick, amazing throw, amazing scent. And all of that for a limited time only, only available at beautifulbastard.com. So get in it while you can. With that said, buckle up for the Philip DeFranco show. Hit that like button and let's just jump into it. People are coming back from the dead is the most dramatic way I can describe what's happening on Twitter right now. Starting with master insurrectionist and former President Donald Trump, who was banned following January 6th, returning to the platform. Or rather, I mean, Elon Musk reinstating his account. Uh, Donald Trump has not posted from it yet. This, after Elon Musk, who, by the way, his Twitter followers are like half bots, put out a Twitter poll asking users if Trump's account should be reinstated. And with 15 million votes, 51.8% of accounts said yes, while 48.2% said no. With Musk saying, the people have spoken. Trump will be reinstated. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Also, just so we're on the same page, we're all aware that he was going to reinstate Trump no matter what. Even before the 24-hour poll was done, he seemed to be kind of like setting the stage for that. As the no's were gaining more and more votes, he started talking about, oh, it's really interesting to see the bots. This is the same guy that less than a month ago tweeted, Twitter will be forming a content moderation council with widely diverse viewpoints. No major content decisions or account reinstatements will happen before that council convenes. Then he was like, psych, here's an easy to abuse poll. But following Musk doing this, of course, there was a wide range of reactions. You had people like Mr. B saying it's time to grab the popcorn. People like Marjorie Taylor Greene saying, he should have never been banned in the first place. You also had others saying this proves that Musk isn't serious about safety on Twitter and preventing hate and violence. As far as Trump, apparently he's saying that he's not interested in returning to Twitter, but we'll see how long that lasts. Also, it's not just Trump. We've seen others coming back to Twitter. Andrew Tate, for example, who was banned back in 2017, just got the green light to return, calling Elon the top E to his top G, even saying he's flying to California to tell Musk he's a legend. Jordan Peterson also back on the website thanking Musk for letting him on, giving Musk props for a meme that he just took from one of his followers. Also, Kanye West appears to be fully back after he was locked out for a few weeks over his anti-Semitic remarks. Satire site Babylon B also being reinstated, but it appears that not everyone can come back to Twitter, with Musk drawing a line when it comes to reinstating certain banned individuals, with one of the most notable being Alex Jones. And as far as why Musk won't allow him on, he said, My firstborn child died in my arms. I felt his last heartbeat. I have no mercy for anyone who would use the deaths of children for gain, politics, or fame. And while you had many people saying, good, fuck Alex Jones, there was also a decent chunk of pushback. And while it wasn't exclusively like libertarians and right-wingers, you had people like uh, Shuan Head, for example, responding, your story is heartbreaking, but this is literally just confirmation that you're making rules based on how you personally feel about things. No mercy for, okay, Mr. Merciful Billionaire God, can you just run a website like, there are war criminals on here. And later adding, however you feel about Alex Jones aside, Elon just completely showed his ass. And then separately, a, a lot of the arguments from the, the more libertarian and, and right-wing crowd were kind of echoing that point. Also, as far as other deplorables who uh, likely will not come back to the platform, you have uh, Ethan Klein still. Right? He was banned after impersonating Musk. Also, his wife, Ela, got banned a few days ago. This after a tweet from the account read, this is Ethan 
Ethan, you fucking loser at Elon Musk. I'm banavating, lol, stop me now, bitch ass loser. And later defending that tweet, uh, saying it was a joke on Elon's account, it's not even a real ban evasion. Calling Musk petty for doing this, saying, why are you focusing on this while Twitter is burning? But yeah, any and all thoughts you have on this developing clusterfuck, be sure to share in those comments down below. And then, one of the deadliest major sporting events in the world kicked off yesterday. The World Cup. FIFA says that it's going to attract as many as 5 billion viewers. Also, for my American viewers, I'm gonna call it football. If you wanna call it soccer, the men's team has to win once. Them's the rules. But as far as why I call this the world's deadliest sporting event, it's connected to the controversy surrounding the location. Right back in 2010, the oil-rich Gulf state of Qatar won its bid to host this year's World Cup. And it has spent the last decade or so preparing, building seven new stadiums, hundreds of miles of highway, plus an airport, hotels, and other buildings. All of it making this the most expensive World Cup ever at $220 billion, more than every past tournament combined. And to do that, Qatar needed a lot of labor, so it hired them from abroad. With around 2 million migrant workers staying in the country at any given time, while the native population's only around 300,000. Right, we're talking about upwards of 85% of the people there being migrants. And so here's the way it works. They take out loans to work in Qatar, often thousands of dollars, forcing them to stay for years to pay off that debt. And the conditions there are made unbearable by the suffocating summer temperatures. We're talking 120 degrees Fahrenheit, as well as the fact that labor unions and strikes are just banned. And you hear plenty of stories of people not coming back, right? A father or a husband goes to Qatar to feed his family, gets trapped in debt bondage, doesn't receive the wages that he was promised, and then returns home in a body bag. With The Guardian finding that between 2010 and 2020, over 6,500 migrant workers from India, Pakistan, Nepal, Bangladesh, and Sri Lanka died in Qatar, about 12 people per week. And understand, that's not counting the deaths from countries not investigated as well as those occurring in the past couple of years. Which is why so many human rights groups have been accusing Qatar of perpetuating modern day slavery. And if you go to the World Cup, you'll see it everywhere. From the immigration workers that you'd meet at the airport, to the taxi driver taking you to the stadium, to the security guards who greet you there. And then in addition to the thousands of deaths, because we're just getting started, Qatar is infamous for its brutal treatment of LGBTQ people and just also women in general. Homosexuality there is punished as a criminal offense. Women are subjected to male guardianship. And so leading up to the games, you had team captains from England, Wales, Belgium, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, and Switzerland planning to wear rainbow armbands in support of LGBTQ rights. But now they won't be doing that because FIFA said they would be penalized with it explaining, we were prepared to pay fines that would normally apply to breaches of kit regulations and had a strong commitment to wearing the armband. However, we cannot put our players in the situation where they might be booked or even forced to leave the field of play. But truly, the, the cherry on the top of this shit Sunday came in the form of an hour-long speech on Saturday by FIFA's president, Johnny Infantino, in which he defended Qatar's labor practices, attacked Western nations' hypocrisy, and most stunningly of all, compared his struggle as an Italian kid with red hair growing up in Switzerland to that of all these people. Today I feel uh, Qatari. Today I feel Arab. Today I feel African. Today I feel uh, gay. Today I feel disabled. Today I feel... Uh, a migrant worker. But all that said, you know, we're seeing various protests at the event so far. One of the most prominent coming from the Iranian players who refused to sing their national anthem before their game with England, seeming to send a statement to the regime back home, as well as fans holding up signs reading, woman, life, freedom. You know, back home for them, there's a budding revolution raging, with the death toll during the protest rising to now over 400, including around 50 children. With the New York Times also reporting that hundreds of people have literally been blinded after metal pellets fired from guns left them with severe eye injuries. We've also seen people burning down the childhood home of Iran's former supreme leader which is why I'm gonna leave you there for today, but I'm sure we're gonna be having a lot more conversation around Qatar and Iran in the near future. And the question I'll pass off to you, whether, whether you're a hardcore football fan or you're kind of more of a casual and you're just watching the World Cup for the World Cup's sake, and ideally in your comment, you can let me know which of those groups you fit in, but what are your thoughts around everything that we're seeing so far? And then, 
Actually, upon review of this segment, writer Brian had some strong feelings that'll share with you word for word. Quote, don't fall for the English propaganda, Phil. Soccer is originally their term and most English-speaking countries still refer to it as such. Football can technically refer to association football, soccer, or the various rugby rules. This is why playing footy means different things in the UK and, say, Australia. They didn't start calling soccer football until the early 20th century. They try to gaslight Americans into thinking we're the only ones who call it soccer. So with that, y'all feel free to fight it out. Uh, I'm gonna stay out of it. And then, Disney just dropped a bomb, announcing that their current CEO, Bob Chapek, is gonna be standing down and their former CEO, Bob Iger, is returning to the position effective immediately, which is an absolutely huge 180 for the company. It was literally just five months ago where the Disney board of directors unanimously agreed to extend Chapek's contract three more years, which is also why it's important that I tell you some background and also some key points. Right, Chapek took over from Iger in February of 2020, leading the company through the pandemic, also through a plethora of other issues. We're talking about things like the Scarlett Johansson lawsuit, the, the Florida don't say gay, Bill and Ron DeSantis taking aim at them, a roughly 36% drop in stock value this year. But holy hell, you had people this morning calling Bob Iger the $15 billion man because the market reacted to the news that Iger was returning by boosting Disney stock 9%. Though, understand, I'm filming this as the market is still open. They're gonna be fluctuations, so it shouldn't be a surprise if it goes lower, but still likely in the positive. And a key thing here is it's not weird that the market reacted this way. Iger is legendary at Disney. Right Before he passed the torch in 2020, he ran the company for 15 years and made Disney into what we know it is today. He helped in the acquisitions of Pixar, Marvel and Lucasfilm, as well as the purchase of most of 21st Century Fox, also leading the company through the creation and launch of Disney Plus. Though, Disney Plus could be part of the reason that Iger is back, although just angry investors in general could be the reason that he's back. Right, some key things. Disney reported a $1.5 billion loss in the streaming division earlier this month, also missing Wall Street expectations for both revenue and earnings per share, with JPEG sending out an internal memo afterwards discussing a hiring freeze, layoffs, and cost-cutting measures, while Disney released a statement saying farewell to JPEG, thanking him for all his service, including navigating the company through unprecedented challenges of the pandemic, but then also going on to say that only Bob Iger can lead them through this, quote, increasingly complex period of industry transformation. Iger returning isn't reportedly him trying to be king forever, with reports saying that he signed on for just two more years as CEO with the intention of finding a successor to the position. So it kind of feels like Disney's telling Chapek, it's not you, it's me, but it's really you, it's because like I'm going through a lot right now, it's crazy times. Or I'll leave the stories with Disney fans, how you feeling? You want to talk about it? And then, women are struggling, at least on Twitch, according to the recent State of the Stream report. It's done by Stream Elements and Rainmaker.gg, and it looked at data from October of 2022 to find trends and what streamers were the most popular by looking at the amount of hours watched. At the top of the list, you had the creator with the most hours watched being Brazilian streamer Gaules, followed by XQC. You also had creators like Hassan Piker and Aiden Ross cracking the top 10. But one of the key things that people looked at and noticed were how many women were in the top 100. Only to guess, was it 17? Was it 8? Was it 3? It was 1. One woman, you might be familiar with her because we've talked about her a number of times on the show, Amaranth coming in at number 53, with a report noting that women are, quote, not experiencing a lot of growth on Twitch charts, and saying it's not until you include the top 200 creators where you get eight more women, with outlets like Dixerto noting that this is actually a fall for women, right? Usually you have more than one cracking the top 100. Though, there it did note that one of the biggest streamers in the world, Pokimane, who does frequent the top 100, has been taking a break. Though, and I'm completely pulling this out of my ass, it's my belief that if you take into account how much money creators are bringing in, Amaranth is probably number one, if not at least in the top five. Like her Twitch, yes, it does bring in money, but it is largely a promotional tool to the thing that makes her the most money. Like we're talking generational wealth. Like there's doing well, rich, and then generational wealth. But like I said, I'm pulling that out of my ass. Amaranth has been very like transparent about how much money she makes and what she does with it. And there are a thousand percent be a million other factors for a million other creators that I'm not considering. But the question I'll tie to this story, it's specifically for streamers and people who watch streams. What are your takeaways from the list? Why do you think it looks like that? Does it 
any of this mean anything? And if so, why or why not? And then I want to tell you how I've supported my gut health this year thanks to today's sponsor, Seed. I've been taking Seed's DSO-1 daily symbiotic since back in January, and I'm still seeing the health benefits. My body feels great. That's because Seed's unlike any other symbiotic on the market. They've combined a probiotic and a prebiotic to form their DSO-1 daily symbiotic. It's designed to support gastrointestinal function and whole body health. And their unique capsule design uses an outer prebiotic capsule that protects the inner probiotic through digestion past your stomach acid for 100% survivability into your colon. And when it comes to symbiotics, both quality and quantity of the strains matter. With Seed setting a new standard for the probiotic industry in terms of clinical and scientific testing, which is why I love them. And really, there's no better time in the holidays to give your gut the support that it needs. Plus, Seed's DSO-1 goes beyond to help promote systemic benefits like clear and glowing skin and heart health. The first month, you'll receive the refillable glass jar and travel vial with a 30-day supply. After that, they'll send refills packaged with sustainable biodegradable materials. So hey, go to seed.com slash DeFranco and use code DeFranco to get 15% off your first month's supply of Seed's DSO-1 plus free shipping. And then we need to talk about COP27. Right yesterday, the United Nations wrapped up its annual two-week-long climate summit in Egypt, and there they came to a deal on a so-called loss and damage fund for poor countries. Basically, it's thought of as reparations to the most vulnerable to climate change who also happen to be the least responsible for the emissions, which is especially important as they're taking the brunt of worsening sea level rise, storms, droughts, heat waves, and other terrible, awful, no-good shit that nature's punishing us with for our greed. But a key takeaway is that this policy is something that poor nations and climate activists have been demanding for over three decades now, but the United States and other heavily polluting countries have opposed it. And understand, while we saw a movement today, another key thing, it's going to be several years until the fund is actually created. And key questions still need to be answered, like who's going to oversee it, how will the money be dispersed, and to whom. And the backdrop to all this is that the summit couldn't come to any single agreement on any commitment stronger than what they already reached in the 2015 Paris Climate Accords, namely limiting the global temperature rise to 1.5 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. This, as the world is on track to reach double that number by the end of the century, which is a catastrophic scenario. And many countries' delegates saying they had to make concessions on phasing out fossil fuels if they wanted to push the reparations deal through, which is apparently why they felt frustrated with Reuters even describing Germany's climate secretary as visibly shaken, and the UN Secretary General explaining. A fund for loss and damage is essential, but it's not an answer if the climate crisis washes a small island state off the map or turns an entire African country to desert. The world still needs a giant leap on climate ambition. And then, in horrible international news, an earthquake has killed dozens of people, injured hundreds, and displaced thousands. On the main Indonesian island of Java, a 5.6 magnitude earthquake hit the densely populated area at 1.20 p.m. local time on Monday. Also, a key thing right now, there are some conflicting reports on the death toll as search and rescue efforts continue. Right, Indonesia's disaster mitigation agency reports 62 deaths, more than 700 injured, and 2,200 homes damaged, with over 5,000 people displaced. Whereas the governor of West Java reported on Instagram that 162 people have died in the disaster and more than 300 have been injured, also putting the number of displaced people around 13,000. Also, it wasn't just homes affected by this. We're talking hospitals, a boarding school, several government buildings in the area also sustaining damage. The surrounding areas seeing landslides hitting hundreds more homes. But this is still a developing situation. We're going to talk about this again, but hopefully, hopefully, the numbers stay lower. And then, of course, the last thing that we have to talk about today is the tragic shooting at an LGBTQ plus nightclub in Colorado Springs. A lot of information has been coming out since it happened on Saturday night, but here we go. This monster, this gunman, entered Club Q with an AR-15 style rifle and opened fire, killing five and injuring 18 more. According to accounts from officials and witnesses, the whole ordeal happened very, very fast. Law enforcement officials said that the suspect started shooting as soon as he entered the club, but police saying that the first officer arrived on the scene three minutes after being dispatched at 11.57, and the suspect was taken into custody at 12.02 a.m., just six minutes after the first call to police came in. And very notably here, this is a key thing. Authorities said that a big part of the reason they were able to arrest the suspect so fast was because two patrons were able to subdue the gunman within minutes. 
minutes. With Colorado Springs Mayor John Suthers talking about this quick timeline and saying. And that's largely because uh, uh, two, but primarily one, as I understand it, uh, are able to take a, a handgun that he's got uh, in his possession, take it away from him, and use that weapon not by shooting it, but uh, uh, by hitting him and disabling him. Uh, it's an incredible act of heroism. And I think when you look at this in the time frame, uh, that act probably saved uh, a lot of lives. It was also echoed by Club Q, which praised the quick reactions of heroic customers that subdued the gunman and ended this hate attack. Now, as far as what we know about this fucking monster, officials have identified him as a 22-year-old man. While the authorities are still searching for an official motive, the mayor and many others have said this clearly reeks of a hate crime. A city spokesperson announced today that he's being held on five murder charges and five hate crime charges. But those are just the arrest charges that could be changed when filed in court by prosecutors who notably have been granted their request to keep the court documents related to the suspect's arrest sealed for now. Additionally, we saw the city say in a statement that multiple firearms were found at the scene and that law enforcement is still working to identify who the firearms belong to. With many saying that is going to be a key thing here, right? Where did he get these weapons? Because it's been widely reported that the suspect appears to have a history of threatening deadly violence. Right? According to a sheriff's office report, a person with the same name, address, and birthday as the suspect was arrested back in June of 2021 and charged in connection with making a bomb threat in a Colorado Springs suburb, with a report saying that a woman had called and said that her son was threatening to hurt her with a homemade bomb and other weapons. But after an hour-long standoff, the person surrendered and no bomb was found. But there is reportedly no public record that prosecutors moved forward with the charges against him or that members of his family tried to trigger Colorado's red flag law that would have let the authorities take his weapons. So you have a lot of questions there. Along with that, you have many LGBTQ plus activists and others saying this is clearly a hate-based attack. Many noting that this took place the day before Trans Day of Remembrance, which is an observance of trans folks who have been harmed or murdered as a result of transphobia. The Human Rights Campaign also saying that the last year was the deadliest on record for trans people. Which on that note, many advocates have said that this latest attack was driven in part by a significant spike in anti-LGBTQ plus rhetoric and laws. And there, according to an analysis of FBI data by the research group Crowd Counting Consortium, right-wing activists have been increasingly mobilizing against the LGBTQ plus community over the past year. With people pointing to things like this year alone, armed demonstrators and far-right groups have utilized intimidation tactics at drag-related events in Texas, Nevada, and Oregon, among other states. Children's hospitals have also been facing growing threats of violence like bomb threats due to online campaigns. People also noting that there's a whopping 18 states that do not have hate crime protections for LGBTQ plus people. And while Colorado has been seen as one of the most LGBTQ plus friendly states in America, and Club Q has been described as a safe haven for the community since it opened in 2002, threats and attacks have gotten so bad that many people say nowhere feels safe, with many pointing to the fact that far-right groups have actually been turning their attention to more liberal states more and more. But as a filming, that is where we are with this story. It is still a developing situation. We're waiting to see what other information comes out. And as much as I hate that it is a constant thing that I have to say on this show, my thoughts and well wishes to those affected. What you're going through is unthinkable. It's unimaginable. It's unforgivable that you're having to go through it. But that is where I'm going to end this story in today's show. As always, thank you for watching and being a part of the, these dives into what's happening in our world. My name's Philip DeFranco. You've just been filled in. I love your faces, and I'll see you tomorrow.